so we had a mu- big music center. My brother, who was older than me, he was the one who would buy the records. So when growing up, we grew up very eclectic mix of records. We had Bollywood, you know, sort of LPs. So we listened to that, a lot of those. But we also had stuff like Dean Martin. All the brothers were huge fans of Dean Martin. We loved his singing. Uh, just didn't like Frank Sinatra, but we loved Dean Martin. We had... Um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel. We all loved the Simon and Garfunkel stuff that was uh, the tr- Bridge of Trouble Water, si- Sound of Silence, all of that stuff. We just loved. So we grew up into that sort of mixture of both Western Asian music. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. But today, I guess we should call this Book Talk, uh, because I am having, as I love to do, uh, writers. I, I, um, my new friend, Asif, and I have interacted on Twitter a lot, and I reached out to him. I said, hey, I know this podcast is about Springsteen, but I love talking to writers. Would you want to join me? And he was kind enough to say yes. So welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you very much, Jesse. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah. So go ahead. Just introduce yourself to the listeners and we'll go from there. Right. So uh, my name is Asif Sarah. I live in the UK. I'm uh, in my late 50s <laughs> and I came to the UK from Pakistan when I was about seven. Got raised, uh, went to the Midlands here in the UK uh, educated but, and went to university, originally trained as a medical scientist. So I did uh, quite a bit of a pharmacology, diabetes research, AIDS research, also doing a bit of schizophrenia research. And whilst I was going through that, I mean, you just couldn't escape the comics. So one of my first loves was uh, reading comics, Spider-Man comics, and then finding out the whole collection and sort of dipping in bits and bobs. I did it with my brother, and we had a huge collection of comics. Um, I still have some of them on now. But uh, that was my introduction to superheroes and the love of writing. I love Stan Lee's writing, and I was sort of writing stuff, sketches, even when I was a teenager. So went off and did medical research scientist, and then later on I looked at sort of how I wanted to change my careers, and I went into IT. So when I was in IT, I got seriously into some forums and other places where they were posting stuff and I started posting some of my sketches. So my first stuff was superhero sketches based on my love of the comics. And so I did that for a little while and I realized that the penny clicked that these were copyright characters and I wasn't going to get many, much mileage out of it. So uh, once I, if you like, developed my uh, skills as a writer, I started to look at other sort of stories, original stories, and that's where I sort of ended up over a period of about, I would say it was 20, yeah, about 15, 18 years. I've been sort of writing, coming up with ideas. I've got, I don't have a genre. I don't sort of write mystery or historical I was going to stop you right there. You do seem to be, and, and you know, the phrase all over the board, um, you yeah. know, there, there, you certainly do some comedy. Um, you have a series, uh, Charlotte Holmes, which is kind of your re, imaging of 
the um, Sherlock Holmes kind of genre. Uh, mm-hmm. But you also do uh, – it looks like uh, – I, I bought the first book, but I haven't got to read it yet – like a, a trilogy set in, in the West. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah so. absolutely. Uh, that's um, one of the key things. I mean some of the stuff – as you go through, you sort of develop ideas. And one of the things I sort of learned originally, to be honest with you, hands up, I wanted to write film scripts. So that was a key thing, I was developing stuff and ideas. And obviously you work in that sort of genre and you look into the industry and how it can work. And I very quickly realized that there was no one was going to produce a film from an unknown person. You know, you look into this and you say, oh, that's a slush pile. It just goes there. No one ever touches it, that kind of stuff. Yes. So it became very frustrating. And I thought, well, this isn't going to really get me anywhere because I was I feel like it was a dam to my ideas of getting out there and writing stuff. So I looked at what was also out there. And at that point, Kindle self-publishing came up. And I thought, well, this is a good way to get that material out there and actually control the material. I mean, least I can now write a story, tell the story of my characters in the way I want it and have it published there as well. So that was my real outlet where I started to write stuff. So one of the first things I did was Colin Thorson and Teenage Superhero. Again, you sort of, you, I've looked to myself, right? You write as a fan fiction kind of thing. You, not imitate, but you imitate or you follow in the stuff of what you've written. And then as you sort of go through that, you try to evolve going forward. So that's what I've seen myself as a writer evolving through time. As I said, the superhero stuff is you do for a little while and then you realize, you know, it has a certain, if you like, a limitation and a certain sort of envelope you can't go beyond. Right. And you start looking at other stories. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things I admire about you um, and and this is going to come across as a criticism, and I don't mean it. I have been friends with and known people that were prolific fan fiction writers, mm-hmm. um, and they 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 enjoy that. They they it fits their creativity. You know, it scratches that itch. But that's a that's a fun waiting pool, if I can mix my mm-hmm. metaphors, and, and but you're never going to get beyond that as a writer if you yeah. don't leave that fun, whether it's it's Star Trek or Supernatural or Buffy or yep. whatever genre you want, um, you know, Sports Night, you know, West Wing fiction, mm-hmm. and, and go and find your own characters and your own voice to, to push those creative muscles. Absolutely. You've got to, I mean, what I try to do is each book I write I try to set myself a challenge something that is sort of unique in that because otherwise if you're writing the same book again and again it becomes re- boring for the writer becomes boring for the reader and you've got to sort of invent yourself and develop as a per- uh, sort of a if you like a, a writer as a creative artist and one of the key things was as I said moving away from that sort of fan fiction I mean, fan fiction has a good purpose if you look at superheroes that's where I sort of write and how you work through it those heroes were actually invented to be written by other writers. I mean, I know uh, Stanley and Steve Ditko created Spider-Man, but yeah. so many other writers and artists worked on there. And because you can then see how over the you know decades, different writers looked at different aspects of the character, brought in other characters, and played around with a well-established character, even though it's not their own character. So there is that, if you like, tradition within comics of using other people's characters. But as you say right on, it is a waiting pool. It stops you from creating your own character, your own situation. And also, it's, it is safe because you know 
you can hook into other people's work and then just write about it, make fun of it, you know, tell gags. But at the, at the end, it is limiting because you are working within a constraint of someone else's creation and you can't publish it. That's the biggest thing. You do not own that. And, you know, you've got to be respectful of the people's intellectual property. Absolutely. And I, that's, that's well said. And, um, and, and I think you just, we just lost Vinnie O'Neill, and you yes. joined the many people who, on Twitter, shared your admiration. Um, you know, he took established Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Yes. I just had Ron Martz on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about this, mm-hmm. and he changed it to a different level. He used yeah. those characters in a different way, but he was working for DC, and mm-hmm. so um, I get that. And that's it. And it is fun. When you read someone take that, have you um, have you ever pursued writing comics um, professionally? Well, I did sort of uh, way back in the early eighties. I did write a uh, proposed pitch to um, Marvel, uh, went sending to their offices, and they were kind enough to respond to me. And they said, "Yeah, this is good. Some interesting stuff." It is also. I did a comedy, you know, our humor is very important for me, and I put in a satire piece about Stan Lee writing one of his columns, and they loved that, they thought it was very funny. But at the end of the day, I was an owner writer sitting in England sure. with no, you know, portfolio of stuff I'd done. You know, I mean, if you think logically, I should have been working in UK comics, yeah, making a yeah. little name for myself there, and then using that to get into the business. But you, you don't know when you're outside, right? You don't know how to get through the door. You don't even know where the door is or the window is. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> you, you need to be shown those things, and you need to be told whether this is feasible or not. You know, Absolutely. the other side of the fence does really – there's a whole business and world of how things are evaluated and how much stuff comes at them, and they do have to have filters and, you know, ways of measuring what's coming through at them. Absolutely. Um, so I always like to start out kind of <clears throat> from the beginning because I do want to talk a little music on here. And then we're going to sure. talk some more writing. You talked about growing up in Pakistan. Uh, when did you move to the UK? Uh, that would be uh, 69. So I was quite young then. Okay. Uh, very much uh, sort of a <laughs> – it was a culture shock. So you come from in Pakistan, nice warm climate, and we came to England in February – and there was like uh, three foot of snow outside. I'd never seen snow before. I've seen pictures of it, but never yeah. experienced it. And it was like, oh, my God, what is this? And we were living in this slightly run down house, which didn't have proper heating or, you know, so we're like, we were crying. We we're like, we want to go back. This is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, usually you get into it. My mother and father I'm, come from a big family. We have, I had, you know, four brothers, three sisters. So, you know, we sort of mucked in and, for a youngster, I think that's, you know, uh, seven or eight. It's a great time to move because then everything is so sort of open to experience and you sort of take everything on board. And so just coming into the UK then and getting understanding and picking up on the culture because you come into a brand new culture. You don't understand the references. You don't understand the people. You don't understand the importance. I mean, one of the key things which I didn't realize, which still lingers in England to a large degree is how much the Second World War had an impact on the British psyche. There was very much a we had won the war, you know, we were in the right kind of thing. And then the, the war was all pervasive on TV and films and books. People, you know, talked about it. You know, there was constant films and reminders. So, But for us, it was alien. We hadn't experienced the first, Second World War. We hadn't, didn't know any people who, you know, our parents or grandparents hadn't experienced it either. Whereas 
you flip to the other side, the English had lived through it, the parents, whatever, you know, relatives had all gone through it, and they had a common shared bond, which they explored. So there was a little bit, you know, you, you learn the culture slowly as you go through time. So um, did you happen to watch the film that came out last summer, Blinded by the Light? No, I haven't. No, which one was that about? So, um, the, and the reason I'm asking is, um, it is, it is the, the writer is Pakistanian, and he talks about finding Bruce, this is based on a true story, the book. Um, he discovered Bruce Springsteen, like in the middle 80s. And, um, but a lot of the film is not only him exploring Bruce Springsteen, finding his voice, becoming a writer, but it deals with, Something unusual for me as a, um, a, a Texan, um, is the, the Pakistanian, um, culture and mm. the prejudices that he faced as a young man. Mm. And so you, you, I, first off, it's a really fun film about becoming passionate and finding your voice, not only because it's about Bruce's, um, you know, not just Bruce's music, but just finding anything that you're passionate about, whether it can mm. be comics or, or, you know, or, or John Ford Westerns or, you mm. know, or poetry. Uh, so I think it, it'd be worth checking. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how did it, um, you know, how did it do, you know, how close does it was sure. to something you shared? No, um, no, I would love to do that. Yeah, yeah. That sounds really good. Yeah, it is. It's really good. He, um, um, so talk to me um, – so you shared with me that you're a lot of um, um, uh, different kind of music. So talk to me about um, what kind of music you're listening to as a family. And as you're reaching what we call high school, teenage mm -hmm. years, did you, did you continue to move toward your music, your family's you know, culture music, or did you expand mm – -hmm to a little more of mainstream UK music. Sure. No, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we had a mu big music centre. My brother, who was older than me, he was the one who would buy the records. So when growing up, we grew up very eclectic mix of records. We had Bollywood, you know, sort of LPs. So we listened to that, a lot of those. We also had stuff like Dean Martin. All the brothers were huge fans of Dean Martin. We loved his singing. Uh, just didn't like Frank Sinatra, but we loved Dean Martin. We had um, uh, uh, Simon & Funkel. We all loved the Simon & Garfunkel stuff. That was uh, the tr Bridge of Trouble Water, Sound of Silence, all of that stuff. We just sure. loved. So we grew up into that sort of mixture of both Western Asian music. And coming into high school, as you say, um, I, it's very much English music. So we had the pop charts. I don't know if you're sort of familiar with that, but uh, the BBC on, I think it was a Tuesday, they would run down of the latest top singles, yeah, and we'd all listen to them and follow them religiously. So it was very much the um, late 70s, early 80s music scene. I think what sort of turned me off uh, English music to that point was uh, – Punk, punk came in, sure. and that was just, that was, I mean, I can understand the energy of punk, and I can understand why people were sort of going into it. It was a way of sort of, you know, that cathartic screaming therapy almost, if you think about it. And, but for me, it was just like, oh my God, you know, they dressed weirdly, I didn't want to dress like that. I just couldn't see the appeal of it. But out of that, I did sort of um, pick up on Meatloaf around that time. He came with about Out of Hell, his first sort of 
big LP, and I love that. I thought that was absolutely stunning. One of the key things I sort of look for in music is the quality of singer's voice. I mean, obviously, tune and rhythm is important, but sure. just his quality of Miglo's voice is unbelievable. I mean, you can just feel the depth and strength of his notes and the control he has over it and how he uses it. And that album was that got, album got played a lot. I love that album. So I was into that, whereas my brother, younger brother, is weird. He was into the mod scene, so he was into the Who, the Kinks, yeah. and all that. And he used dressed like a mod, and I was more like a rocker. But yeah, I sort of followed that. Um, what I find interesting is... This is a this is a theme I hear a lot on uh, the podcast um, with siblings. Um, as your your example, um, you had an older brother or sister that helped to influence your music one way or another, and often either you end up liking their music or you rebel against their music because you want to find your own. And if you're the older brother or sister, you know, that you influence the younger ones the same way. And uh, I just think that's a common theme that we share. And you being in the middle, you did it both ways, right? Like you, you were influenced and then, but your younger brother kind of went to his own path. Yeah, absolutely. It's how, you know, is what, and the stuff he was listening to, I mean, the Kings and all that was what great stuff to hear as well, who was absolutely beautiful stuff. And I was in, I, you know, appreciated that, but he was very much of a certain kind of, uh, I remember listening to Lola and that was really funny because the, you know, Lola song was absolutely brilliant and I actually used that in one of my books, sort of the lyrics around that as a kind of a gag payoff. But, um, that was where I sort of went through was that sort of chart following the records. I mean, I was into 10CC. I love 10CC, Dreadlock Holiday. You know, that was in the charts. We actually, funny story, because you end up having a collection of these songs and I've got three daughters. So we used to play it in the car and they loved it. They absolutely loved it from that period. Also, Blondie, picture this. That was another, we play that a lot in the dance around. Blondie was sure. huge when I was growing up and I, I loved her song. And she had a magnetic person and she was absolutely stunning, that woman. You know, really, really drop dead gorgeous. And she had the talent to match it. You know, she wasn't just a pretty face. She actually had you know, yes. huge talent. Um, so, I'm, a funny story, I think, is um, Penn Jillette from Penn and Teller, the magic uh-huh. act. Um, I know them, yeah. Yeah, told the story in his podcast. For a while, he dated Blondie. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And um, and there were um, – he and Teller were working on a gag. This is in I, – I assume it's got to be the 80s uh, where they were going to use the world's largest – deck of cards and do a card trip so he was out learning how to run a forklift so that he could shuffle the cards for the magic trip and he came home just exhausted you know working and uh blondie looked at him and says i did not become a rock star to f a guy who drives a forklift (laughs) (laughs) uh yes so um he it, it sounds like they um they remain friends, and he um, and and he talks about in the podcast. And I need she she has a book she's written, and it's on my to to read list because it sounds like she shares a lot of herself. I agree, amazing voice, amazing talent, and and such energy uh, when mm-hmm. she performs. Yeah. So just carry on that sort of musical sure. journey. Are you asking? So 
I went to university. So I went to university in London, my first university for my degree. And there I met a load of um, Sikhs because uh, London, you have South, always a big yeah. Sikh community. And the Sikhs, um, just to give you a bit of cultural background. So the Sikhs are Punjabi. That's a kind of a dialect in uh, India and Pakistan as well. And when partition happened, that was, a, you know, splitting of India and creation of Pakistan, the Punjab, which is a huge northern region, got split in two. So half of the Punjab was on the Indian side, Sikhs mostly, and the other half was Pakistani. But we have a common language, and because we grew up with the Sikhs, my father was huge friends with Sikhs. He had friends who would go hunting and all that. And when partition came and he had to leave India, he was very upset and he always just talked to us about his time with the Sikhs and how he enjoyed that. So meeting up with the Sikhs back at uni was almost like a re, you know, <laughs> a reset of that sort of friendship my father had. And I had a great time with the Sikhs. But one of the things they did was introduce me to Bhangra. So I don't know if you're familiar with Bhangra. Bhangra is a folk music from the Punjab common to both India and Pakistan. And it's very raw, sort of, you know, as I say, very folksy. It goes back years. And my mother used, they, they sing it at weddings and sort of celebrations. Okay. And so, and what the key thing with Bhangra is you dance, you dance a lot. Have you ever seen a film called Bride and Prejudice? Yes. That was, right, which is adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. But there's a bit where they say you sort of turn on, screwing the light bulb is how you do the dancing, yeah? There's a little yeah. scene there. So that kind of dancing, I got into it. Not only enjoying the music, but also we'd go to functions and there'd be a dance. So you dance around with the guys, you have a great time. So I got really into uh, folk music from that side. And that just carried on. That brought up my love for sort of um, Asian music. And I started to explore Asian music and sort of the Asian music market is driven by two things, really. It's filmy, filmy and non-filmy. So filmy means that it's these are songs recorded for films to be used as playback because okay. the actors can't sing. They just right. mime to professional uh, singers. And this happens in Hollywood less so. Uh, for example, Audrey Hepburn in uh, My Fair Lady, she didn't sing that. Right. So another lady sang those you know, songs because she wasn't capable of doing it. So similarly, you have in the Indian film industry and Pakistani, these film songs. And then you have non-film songs, which are sort of more, uh, they can vary. They range from, as I said, folk songs to ballads, which are like ghazals, which is spoken poetry. Then you can have qualis, which is a religious kind of chanting, rhythmic thing. And that's the style that was promoted by Nusrat Fateli Khan, who passed away. So that sort of, you know, there's a huge, you know, it's an immense ocean of different types of music you can have out there. And so I got into that. And one of the key, you know, just going into that, listening to the songs and the singers. I mean, these guys were just phenomenal. For example, in the Indian film industry, the biggest name, if you like, male playback thing was Muhammad Rafi. And I'm a huge fan of Muhammad Rafi. I was fortunate enough to see him live in concert before he passed away. And this guy was just immense. He could do anything. You know, he could do jazz. He could do rock. Honestly, they used, there's a song he did. Because um, in, in the 60s, they would look at what was happening in the West, yeah, and bring those songs over. And obviously, in the 60s, the Beatles were big. So... <laughs> So they had a song in this sort of Indian Bollywood sort of pot boiler, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And that was this tune that, well, lifted slash nicked from the Beatles. Yeah. 
Hamko Tumse Hepiar, that was the sort of a trans- translation of it. And so you could see how they were being influenced. It was quite amazing. But like I say, Muhammad Rafi sang that song and he sang Ghazals, Kavalis and all these others, huge range, amazing, amazing sort of talent. When, as, as a dad, um, what are, I'm sure you're sharing all kinds of music with your daughters. Uh, yeah. talk to me a little bit about that. What, what are some of y'all's favorite songs to sing together and what are things that they, um, you know, my son now has reached the point where, um, he, he embraces all the things that I love and, and, mm-hmm. and, and we bond with that. But, you know, in his teenage years, there were certainly some eye rolls about things that I was listening <laughs> to, right? Oh, yeah. You always get that. I mean, for myself, I'm very much sort of thing around is for me, my music, some sense of humor. And I sort of love Monty Python and all that. And I introduced my girls to that. I remember my youngest girl, Maheen, she was only about, she was about seven, I think, seven, seven and a half. And she got into watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And she loved it. She absolutely adored it. And she would always ask me to put it on. And she just loved the weirdness of it. Because it is very weird. If yes, you look at it, it is. Charles, uh, there's, there's the coconut piece when they come up. Yes. You know, and there's no horse that they coconut. Why is it? And they, just, they hook into that. It's very childish and it's playful. And I think that's what appeals to them. So, you know, just they grew up with my sense of music, uh, humor around that. And also in the car, as I said, we used to put on the music. And Picture This was just absolute favorite. You know, we sing along they used to um watch sabrina the teenage witch and on that somebody came on and did a cover version of uh, a blondie song and that also sort of got played back you know we sort of hooked into it but very much so that was those kinds and then as we moved forward a lot of bollywood songs all the latest songs you know you when you're watching the films they're releasing the big films and the songs are coming out and there are really some good songs in there and they got very much into that funnily enough my daughter eldest one got married last year congratulations thank you very much so uh, it was our anniversary a little while ago but one of the key things is that is that you have celebration so as part of the wedding uh, ritual and festivals you have little ceremonies of families get together and they play the dolki, which is like a drum, yeah, and they sing and dance. And so we had a lot of that last year, tons of it. People come around. And that's when they sort of learned all the songs, you know, the new, the, and there's constantly sort of wedding songs put out by Bollywood because it's one of the key things that people like to do is play these songs at the uh, during, uh, wedding receptions and, you know, sort of parties. Yeah. And so there's tons of songs there, and they were hooked into that. And some really, really wonderful stuff. And the clothes, I mean, I can't talk about clothes. I mean, you know, fashion is slightly uh, <laughs> off topic, but just to sort of iterate it. Three daughters, yeah, so plus yeah. the wife. That's four people need outfitting, and they need outfitting for four different functions yeah so that yeah, 16 gets close yes absolutely <laughs> now uh, then you gotta have matching up alongside that so there was a lot of clothes being sort of purchased last year oh that's that's um it is um my best friend from high school uh tony had two daughters and we often talk i only had i had the one son and we talk about the um the different advantages of you know and once you have a child you're just happy no matter what and Mm -hmm. and you just see the beauty of raising daughters and he talks about the joy he's had of daughters and how much he's enjoyed it and you know and i've talked about just having a son and 
enjoying that. So I can imagine um, my only worry for you is you're outnumbered, you and your uh, bride, <laughs> right? That's uh, So with three, you're outnumbered. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. I, I gave it a long time ago. So I was raised, my father sort of came over. I was raised by my mother and th- three elder sisters. So I'm used to being ordered around by women. So <laughs> that I, is a I, great I line. That's a great line. So I, I want to talk a few minutes. Tell me about um, your Charlotte Home series. Talk a little bit about where, why you decided this is something you wanted to explore and share a little bit about it. Right, certainly. So you never know where ideas come from. So let me just backtrack a little bit. For example, in I did a book called Cowboys and Indians, which actually came to me while I was watching the Harrison Ford uh, film Cowboys and Aliens, yeah? And so I was watching, I thought, what Cowboys and Indians? Sure. What if you took it literally as proper Indians? And so just from that question, an idea sprang up, and I wrote the book Cowboys and Indians, which is actually about... Texans going to India to build a theme park, a Western theme park, cowboy theme park. Oh, how fun. And what that does is, so you get a cultural clash from what people are expecting, but also what it is about that thing was, I was looking at cultural imperialism, and I don't know if you're familiar with some, but cultural imperialism is about promoting your culture across other cultures at the expense of the indigenous culture. So you have a view of sort of cowboys, of Indians, of American culture, yeah, of what, say, the 50s sure. and all that stuff, and that is promoted out through videos, magazines, songs, out into the world, and people absorb that. But what they take from it is different from what you guys, it means to you, yeah? So as American... Yeah. When you look at something, you know the history of something like the Dodge, the Dodgers or something like this, right? Or the, you know, American cavalry means something to you. For us, it's taken from a film like, as you said, bang on earlier on. I'm a great fan of westerns. I mean, I'm a huge, huge film buff. You know, watch the films all the time. I was crazy. Because if you're writing film scripts, you want to need to watch films, don't you? That's right. How you exactly. Do One follows the two. So just the westerns. I mean, I love uh, my favorite film actually is. Uh, Rio Bravo with John Wayne and Dean Martin because that's a wonderfully underplayed sort of a piece around about responsibility and of change. You see real change in people in that film. Also searches, I love searches, the obsessive search for a daughter, which sorry, for his niece, which goes over seven years. You know the story. But it the is, intensity... Yeah, I, and we could do a whole hour of just talking about John Ford. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I love I, Ford and Hawks. Uh, I, yeah, I did. I, I just recently... Uh, in fact, just last Sunday, um, Stagecoach was on um, Turner Classics, and I rewatched it. And mm-hmm. I was amazed at just the beauty of it, and um, and and how they had. This seems cliche now, but at the time it wasn't. It was, you know, the setting this up, and uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with Searchers is just um, amazing. Uh, so, uh, that, and the way they weave in the other storylines that are very light in, in mm. con, you know, we see what's happening outside of the search. Um, it, it also yeah. tackles a very, very raw subject, right? Which I think is quite pertinent now in America. And it's about miscongeniation. It's about mixing the races. Yes. Which a lot of people are against. And here, the, in that film, John Wayne's character is driven by hatred of that, and he, he's out not to rescue his niece, but to kill her. 
because she's a taint on the family. And that is a wonderful, it's a very dark, dark theme to explore right around that side. It is. And then he's reverse, sorry, I won't, I think everyone's seen the film. No one's going to be surprised. But then his realization that, you know, his love for his niece triumphs that is is a wonderful sort of revelation and beautifully underplayed, understated. And at the end, when he walks away and the door is closed, which is a wonderful circular piece by John Ford, because the film opens with the door film o- door opening and the guy coming yeah so it yes. starts with him coming and he finishes with him leaving it's a wonderful circle thing but it shows he was never part of that life he's if you like yes. he rectified the mistake that had happened but he was never going to be part of her life so it's a wonderful sort of sad you know melancholy piece if you look at it in that way but wonderful themes in that film absolutely um so you're Anyway, so, so you're, you're, you're we're just off the point. Yes, yes, but, yeah, but, but that's that's we I we tend to do that here on set less thinkers. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm I did want to share um one when you told me when you mentioned the the going out and the theme park. Um, there was a point um at a previous job where you know it's Halloween and everyone's dressing up, and um. And we were in the big auditorium, and so everyone was coming by so we could judge everyone's costume, right? right. And uh, the narrator or, you know, the kind of MC, the person hosting, and says, okay, and, and today we have uh, – and, and they named the two people. Um, and I, I remember Jay, but I can't remember the guy. But uh, we have a cowboy and an Indian, and so – and the guy walked in with a Dallas cowboy – football jersey and jay was in a traditional um indian garb with the the robes and her everything and and they kind of and and everyone just rolled because right cowboy and indian you immediately have the image of uh you're right the 50s and 60s western right Mm -hmm. and to play with that was just a lot of fun and uh Mm -hmm. they got they did very well on the dress contest no that sounds really good Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was very clever yes Right. So back to the Charlotte Holmes. So Charlotte Holmes series came back really. I was looking up toward with the idea of um, doing something with Sherlock Holmes, right? But twisting it slightly. And one of the key things was Charlotte Holmes is a female woman, is a woman obviously, but her companion is an Indian doctor. And what I really wanted to do was look at people on the uh, sort of margin of that society, yeah, because in that society, which is very patriarchal and sort of, you know, is run if you like by the men for her she's coming out of a miscarriage so she's suffering from depression and in those victorian times fortunately depression was treated by locking the woman up so she's yes. suffering postnatal depression but she's locked up now you see you take that character and you if you give her then an exceptional intellect intellectual sort of quality and then you balance the two you say there she is if you like you know mentally fractured, suffering through depression, but she's very, very smart. She understands what's going on and she tries to help herself. So you take that character who's, if you like, ostracized, one for being woman slightly and also being suffering miscarriage, and you take a character like Wooten, who is an Indian, who is very much living under the rule of the British, and you put them together and you can then... That was two ideas, because you never had Sherlock Holmes explored as a person. I know you had him... Uh, he had one one of his great loves was one of the villainesses in there, and she I forget the name Irene Adler I think yes. his name yeah and so that was the only kind of emotional attachment you had with Holmes and the other one I can 
remember faintly is his uh, resemblance with his brother Moriarty. Not Moriarty, sorry, uh, Mycroft. Yes. Mycroft in uh, at the home office. So there were the two family things we had with the original one. So here you could take that a little bit further and explore her feelings about what had happened to her and completely put a new uh, spin on it. So that was where those came from. And the first story almost not raised, wrote itself, but it uh, sort of worked out the plot of what I wanted with these two people. And I wanted not a relationship in the sense of a, you know, a sexual romantic relationship, but I wanted a equal relationship where she was suffering from postnatal depression and he was offering her assistance as a doctor. And if you know, uh, and I didn't try to make him the trouble with the Nigel Bruce interpretation of uh, Watson is it turns him into a clown now, which is great for those films, right? But yes. that's not how the books are written. If you read the books, this actually is a doctor. He fought in the Afghanistan war in, in that period, right? And he knows a bit about stuff. He's traveled. So to have him portrayed as that when he's actually writing the journals is a little bit of a disservice to that original character. So I try to make him quite sort of a, you know, with it, no, not be such a buffoon, but obviously he's still amazed by her talent. And I think that's yeah. where the two sort of hook in. And then he treats her through and they go through and solve that first mystery. And whilst I was putting that plot together, I was writing it, I could see that I wanted, because we'd created some, well, I created characters around them, there were stories popping out which I wanted to tell. That's good. And so that's as I went forward. And one of the key, I think, You've not come to yet, but later on in the book, I think it's about third from the end, Charlotte's younger brother comes, appears, Branwell. Now, Branwell, <laughs> just to backtrack a little bit, so Branwell is named after Charlotte Bronte's brother, Branwell. Now, the Brontes were wonderful writers, as you know, right. and I'm so huge fan of their work. And so Charlotte is named in honor of Charlotte Bronte. Branwell is named after the brother. And there's also little, you know, hints through the book around that. Oh, for example, the miscarriage that Charlotte had was a female, and she named her Villette, which is actually a book by Charlotte Bronte. So little homages okay. through nice. the piece like that. And so Branwell comes right, and Branwell is is again, because this whole series, Pirate Parody, if you like, is an inversion of what you already know. So now you have Sherlock Holmes as a woman uh, who has a smarter brother, Mycroft. Now, she has a dumber brother, Branwell. <laughs> so he's socially uh, inept. He just comes out and says stuff. He's rude. He's obnoxious. And he's very much taken up with being, you know, the superior English officer in that environment. So you've got someone, but he's... It's quite easy to paint uh, him as kind of a bit, you know, thick, you know, not thick, but sort of outspoken and one-dimensional. Right. But you have to go beyond that. Because one of the things I learned when I was at university is that these posh-speaking people, you know, they're not stupid. They didn't get there for being stupid. They haven't been in power for hundreds of years through being stupid. Yeah? They are very intelligent. What you have is cultural ignorance. They're not familiar with other cultures. They make assumptions, whatever. So that's where the weakness lies. But it inherently, if you look at these people, they're very clever people. So that's one of the things I made sure was that I didn't make him stupid and as a one-note kind of character was to give him depth. And then as the stories pro progressed, I used him more and more. Because one of the key things when you have with, when I was writing uh, Christmas in Calcutta, which I found was when you write in first person, everything that happens must happen to the narrator. Something can't happen off stage because the narrator doesn't know about it. So how do you right. include that? So that much, very much 
defines a plot. And when I was plotting the second book, I thought, wow, this is really limiting. For example, if you look at read Sherlock Holmes' original stuff and you go look at uh, Bohemia, it talks about there's a very famous scene where they start a fire to see where somebody's hidden something and they go and rescue the uh, object they want to save. I think it's a photo or something. I can't remember now. And that's how you track them. But in films, it's always shown as as is, as live. But actually in the book, it's written as a flashback. Yeah. So because the narration sure. wasn't there, he has to be told this stuff. And that slows things down a lot. So that's why for the second book, what I did was I said, no, I've got to really, you know, uncouple this. And the plot demanded that I have not the narrator there. So what I did was I created two narrators, uh, used Button going forward as the narrator, but also gave Charlotte her voice. So she writes from her diary as well in the second book. So that was a oh, way nice. of one. So that was a way of exploring again. I tried to set myself a challenge, and that was a challenge. How does Charlotte write? So for Charlotte, I'm not giving anything away, but for yeah. Charlotte, I looked for something a bit more modern, and I looked at the um, Virginia Woolf sort of way that she used to write and her stream of consciousness. So, you know, Mrs. Dalloway and all that stuff is very much a atmospheric rather than a meticulous documentation of what's going on. It's more of a feeling of an atmosphere of a, you know, and that's what I wanted to do with the Charlotte character because in the second book, like anything, but she returns back to redoubt the family home she sort of fled from and she sort of deals with the feelings around that of, you know, the loss of her husband, all that stuff. So there was, you know, two narrators speaking and you could use that. So you could have Charlotte doing this on her own. You could have Button doing that on her own and the plot would then bring them together and you could carry on with the narration. So that's how I solved that problem. That's now, nice. <laughs> so the third one, A Birth to Bombay. So that was Passover in Peshawar. So the third one, A Birth to Bombay. Again, the plot demanded... So I was really into this, setting myself a challenge. And on that one, I thought, okay, I, would, I was going to use a little bit of Charlotte, but what I wanted to do was give Branwell his voice. Now, Branwell style was, again, another way of saying, how do you write Branwell? So the way I approached Branwell was I looked at the um, stuff from the 1920s and 30s that was being written, the books, for example, 39 Steps, uh, The Riddle of the Sands, all that stuff. That very much 1930s empire kind of stories, you know, boys own stuff and wrote him as a third person. So he's speaking about himself in the third person, but written in that slightly sort of, you know, over the top empire kind of stuff. So that's what happened in that book. So as I say, I keep um, developing different themes and stories. And with those stories, I mean, now as sort of gone into them and so sort of explored them for the four quartet, the Calcutta Quartet. That's nice. It's set in those sort of stories. The last one, The Whore of Lahore, just to finish off. So that was done, finished in uh, February, March time. Again, they, like, Branwell narration was very successful, I thought. It gave me a lot of freedom to do stuff because you could then, if you think about it, you got Button writing as first person, right? And you got Branwell writing as a third person. So it was a nice way of dropping between two different uh, writing styles and be able to describe stuff and do things that weren't Button wouldn't do sort of thing. And that's what I did in the third, fourth one as well, The Horror of the Horror. Again, Branwell narrates a large chunk of it. Button narrates a large chunk of it. But what it also does is 
previously Button wrote about himself and Branwell and Branwell wrote about himself on his own. There you could twist it. You could have Branwell writing about the narrator. So suddenly your viewpoint of the narrator is flipped to the other narrator. So that's yes. the kind of stuff you can play around with in the books when you have those kind of narrators. Yeah, and I think one of the things that it sounds like you're saying, and like I said, I'm excited about, I've started the first book, I, I'm enjoying it so far, um, and, and I was curious about, and, and I, it sounds like you've answered it, um, recently someone, and I, I don't remember who, it, it may have been Ron, but someone else tweeted, hey, don't know who needs to know this, but if you have a, uh, if your two leads are female and male, you do not have to get them together. Um, and and I, it sounds like that's a conscious decision of uh, you want them to be equal, to have a friendship, but there doesn't necessarily need to be a romance nature in it. Absolutely, and I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think the classic example, I don't know if you went through it, is Moonlighting. So Moonlighting yes. with Sybil Shepherd and Bruce... Sorry, uh, I forget the chap's name. Yeah. Right? Bruce Willis. Yes. It's Bruce Willis, yeah. So they had that chemistry, and will they, won't they, for a couple of seasons, yeah? And that was really fun because they were – it was a tease, wasn't it? It was that right. will they, won't they, and that kept the tension. The minute they fell for each other, the atmosphere went from that series, and they lost their way. They struggled, and they tried to go back and you know break them up again, but they'd done the damage. I mean, that's – I always think when you put – a sexual relationship between two characters, it changes the dynamics. It has to change it. And that's, I didn't want to do that with these characters. I said, no, no. Yes. She's beyond that. You know, this is not about that. And if once you go through the other two books, uh, sort of up to Horrible Horror, you'll see how that friendship is quite central to them. Because at one point, Charlotte says to, what happens is that people start telling Button, oh, why are you listening to her? Why are you following her? She's loony, you know, her husband and others yeah. sort of say, you know, she's mentally distressed. And she says to him, she knows this is happening. She says to him, be constant to me, you know, be, you know, stick yeah. by me, basically. And that is a theme that I follow through with the other four books, three books, is about how can you do that? Because what, one of the key things that happen with Button is he becomes enraged at the injustices the British are perp uh, perpetrating in India. Right. And in the fourth book, he finds out something about his father, which makes him even more anti-British. At that point, he's torn between, does he follow the nationalists and have an anti-British agenda? And what happens to his friendship with Charlotte? How does he balance that out? So, you know, there's things you can play around with that point about, you know, he's being constant to it, but at the same time, how do you balance the personal against the political? Yeah, that's what it's about for me in that point. Yeah, and I I, I like that premise. Um, I know um, one of the things that I have had, I've been fan of of TV series, especially where um, you know they decide at the last minute. Oh well, our leads they need to be. Um, they need to have a romantic ending, mm. and it's like, no, I think it's perfectly okay to have a a a bond that is just friendship. So I I, I really appreciate that. I think it's going to make it for uh, an interesting story and telling. So well done. Um, <laughs> so just to finish off on the yeah, Charlotte please. series. So what I've done is, I mean, uh, you, you you think I'm crazy, but basically I've planned them out. 
for the next sort of the whole series. It's a finite series, it's an ongoing series. And what he does is it's kind of a quartet set in each decade. So we're dealing with the early 1900s, yeah. So the next okay. book, which is A Wedding in Winchester, <laughs> sure. sorry about the alliteration, blame Stanley for that. But yeah. that's set 10 years forward. So after the events of the Whore of the Whore, there's a jump 10 years and you start to see what story's going on there. So in A Wedding in Winchester, this is again, expanding Charlotte's, um, if you like, uh, it explores the, her family background. Okay. It, you know, I mentioned some of it in the first four books, but now we look at her parents, what happened to them, we look at her sister, we look at her estranged brother, and those, sort of that mapping out of Charlotte. And so if, when I was planning that, and I thought, well, if somebody looks at this, they would never think this is a Sherlock Holmes story. This is something else now. And over the course of the four books, the characters and the, what the situations have evolved, and there's still mysteries there. I mean, they all solve the mystery in all the books, but it's much more different now. It's that these characters are driving themselves almost now because they have their own, so they made decisions in the books, and now they're going to live through those. And that book, so, as I say, the uh, next set of quartet called the Kensington Quartet is set in the 1910s. And it goes through the 1910s, right through the First World War. And it's quite important. The First World War plays an important part in it because one of the key things of the recruitment in India, a lot of Indians fought in the First World War. And as a consequence of that, they were promised there would be independence. So that is the little thing, that narrative that plays through those four books. Now, you love this one. So that's the 1910s. That's got the story. So I'm working on those. That... um, Wedding in Winchester, I'm hoping to write in the autumn once sort of things calm down a bit. But the, then the next set of quartet is set in America, 1920s, and that's going to be, it's called the Yankee Quartet, and that's four stories set in America. So I roughly planned them out where they are. They'll go from East Coast to West Coast, the stories. Nice. For America, and also it, it brings in American characters. For, I'll give you an example, right? Um, the first book in the American court, Yankee Quartet will be a native in New York. Yeah. So yeah, now sure. you have Button in New York and his views and, exp- and you know, sort of uh, experiences of that. And you have Charlotte in there as well, sort of exploring a mystery. So, as I say, that's set in the 1920s in America. And I think that's a very important period for the Americans as well, that you come out of, you know, it's a growth, the world is changing, films, you know, how you consume so literature, all of that stuff. You've got the Wall Street crash that comes out of that as well. And you've got, excuse me, <clears throat> almost the seeds of fascism being sown, ready for the conflict in the 1930s. So, yeah. so that's why I want to focus just on America. So there's four stories set in America around that period. And, just, and then there's four stories set around the empire in the 1930s. Again, that sort of be South Africa, Australia, places where the British were connected and what the indigenous experience of the, the British being there, for example, in uh, the Australian one, very much interested in exploring the Aborigines' viewpoint of these invaders, if you like, and how they experienced it. So, you know, you bring stuff in as you sort of explore those stories. And finally, the, the final three stories are set in India in the 1940s as partition occurs and the British leave oh, and Charlotte actually leaves. So the, the whole story ends up with Charlotte. I mean, I'm not giving it away, but yeah. Charlotte you know, then has to go back to England. So that's how the complete series finishes but that's the plan roughly in my head of how i'm gonna do it that's nice i like that i like that a lot 
So, you know, there is a purpose and a drive towards that. And as I say, you know, I try to set myself challenges. Uh, for example, I give you a, in the Hall of Lahore, I came to do a piece. Um, in Indian sort of films, you have that classical, I don't know, it's called a mujra, which is basically a courtesan dances for these rich men or for, the, you know, the mogul or the prince, and they sing and they dance at the same time. Very common theme in Indian films. Right. It happens a lot. Now, that really is a very filmic, visual kind of thing. And then I, the challenge for me was, how do I capture that in writing? How do I capture the flow, the rhythm, and the emotions of that scene in a writing? So the challenge in the whole of the whole was to, there's a section, I'll give you a bit of flavor actually on that one. The whole of the whole is really about a Maharaja asks Charlotte and Button to investigate this uh, prost- courtesan, sorry, and he thinks she's his legitimate daughter from another affair he had. So they go in and look at this uh, courtesan, what she does. And so you have to describe the whole world of the courtesan, how they're groomed, how they practice, and what the purpose is around what they're doing. And that, then they dance and capturing the lyrics. So you have to have the lyrics of the words in there and how she conveys those emotions when she's dancing. So that was a challenge in that book was to capture that for the reader that you get that dancing and the movement and swaying and still have lyrics which have meaning to the narration and the whole drive of the story. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. <laughs> it sounds like it. It sounds like, yeah, that, that sounds really great. So I, I did want to ask, um, sure. why what about why marvel instead of dc and that's not a judgment i'm just curious <laughs> um was there anything it just worked out that way or was there something that drove that no, i think it was basic um for marvel i came across marvel in the early they did some reprints in the uk in the um yeah. early 70s so spider-man all the early stuff so got into that i had read some dc comics but the DC comics from the 50s and early 60s were very much a, you know, they had an incredible situation on the cover and they had a very pat answer, yeah? And right. there wasn't any sort of continuity around that. Whereas you read Marvel and you read an issue with Ditko and you said, wait a minute, I want to know what happens to the next character. And they did carry on those themes, you know, across the issues. And that kind of gave you an investment in that character, that you're learning something week to week. Whereas the DC stuff, some of the early stuff, was very much like a sugar snack. You took it and that was it. You know, you enjoy the art, you enjoy the bit of Batman, Superman fighting, but when it's over, it felt inconsequential. So that's why I sort of, if you like, ended up doing a lot more Marvel. And once you get into Marvel, and, you know, Marvel very clever with, with the Marvel Universe, it's not about, you know, having everything all lined up. It's about sucking readers into other titles. That's yes. what it's about. You know, you put Spider-Man on the comic of on the cover of a Daredevil issue, people pick it up because Spider-Man, they love Spider-Man, and I can yeah. see how he used to promote that across there. So that interwovenness worked very well. Obviously, they got stuck because they ended up with so much continuity they couldn't carry on. But as I sort of went through my, if you like, my comic education, I started picking up the uh, DC stuff. I mean, a uh, huge fan of them. Um, Alex Ross' work on DC, yes. Frank Miller's Dark Knight, absolutely yeah. stunning. You know, really, uh, year one as well, Batman is wonderful. The Neil Adams' Green uh, Lantern stuff, Green Arrow stuff. We talked about, you know, Daddy yeah. Neil, all that work. Is that, you know, I've got ma- I'm just looking, turning around now, looking at my um, <laughs> collection of comics and books and prints, and yeah, there's tons of DC stuff in there. But I think 
you you adopt Marvel as a genre because it, 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 the landscape is big and you can take from it. The trouble with DC is that the, the landscape has key towers, key high points for characters. For example, excuse me, I'm looking at now the uh, Superman story they did, All Star Superman by Morrison and Quintley. That is absolutely amazing. That's a wonderful, yes, almost childlike view of Superman, but done so intelligently. Where he, you know the story, he's dying, and he sort of comes yeah. to terms with that. Uh, the art is fantastic, and you know, so you enjoy stuff. And I enjoy stuff like Justice League as well. Uh, Watchmen, huge, huge work. So it's not exclusively Marvel. It is very yeah. much, you know, looking at what is the high points in these series and going for them. I mean, Batman Hush, wonderful, wonderful story. And yeah. I have my own copy of that because I, I love that. The artwork on that was absolutely stunning. Some of the best stuff that had uh, been put out about Batman. It really was. Um, I, um, I'm a little, I'm about 10 years older than you. I was born in 59. And, um, so I, I grew up reading, um, DC comics. Partly for the very reason you are, um, I there was no consistent way of me getting comics, and mm. so DC Comics always gave me a full story, versus like if you got a Spider-Man or a Fantastic Four or an Iron Man, yes. you you would only get half a story sometimes. Yes. Uh, it felt like it now, and and so um, and then much like you, when I developed when I was able to have my own money and was able to uh, buy my own comics. I developed a great love for the Marvel universe. And so, but um, you tend to, um, you go to what you loved as a kid, kind of, um, I don't know if you're a Doctor Who fan, right? But you tend to, people say their doctor is the doctor they watched when mm-hmm. they were growing up, it tends to yeah. be, even though they enjoy the others. Uh, That's did, true. Yeah, um, this is great. I, I've had so much fun. What have I not asked you that I should have? <laughs> um, I think it's been good. Um, yeah. Why? I think one question would be, why do I write? I mean, yes. I, I, I think I'm ended up with sort of weird background because I've got sort of, as I say, a lot of uh, medical knowledge and I've got a lot of IT knowledge now. But I've always loved writing, creating. And I think if I had to say anything, it was – these stories run around in my head, and until I put them on paper, they won't go away. So I have to write. <laughs> I, I think I've heard that from other writers, and I do think that's um, one of the things that you um, – in fact, a- Isaac Asimov had a short story about that. Uh, there, the, I don't remember – I just remember the punchline. The, the, the premise was that it was the day in life of like a – network executive but at the time think of um you would in his world um it was not films it was like um you were immersed like in 3d virtual reality but he didn't call it that but it was virtual reality and there and they had different meals and different meetings and one of them uh were a writer quits and and the executive's like, yeah, no problem. You know, I'm going to let you out of your contract and uh, we'll go away. And so the follow-up, the assistant's like, wow, you've lost one of your best writers. And he goes, I had three meetings today and this last one with the writer is the only one I'm not worried about. When you're like him, you can't stop writing. Mm. And my me giving him the advantage, you don't have to. I know he will come back because he has to write. It, 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 and, and I remember that. And I, when I 
when I read interviews with writers and I talk about that, you know, right, like where do you get your ideas? And they're everywhere because the way your mind works as a writer, everything is a potential story and everything mm -hmm. kicks something else. and You kind of throw it in your mind like, oh, I could use that later. Oh, I might be able to work that. So yeah. I appreciate you sharing your process. No, I, have to, I mean, it's one of the key things. You've hit the nail on the head, right? When you see something as a writer, you have to flip it, yeah? Yeah. For I'll give you an example. Um, there was um, a British journalist who was uh, kept hostage in Beirut for a long time, and he was released, and there's a lot of big, uh, big sort of thing about in the media about it. And I immediately thought, wait a minute, he had a girlfriend. She was on a loan for years. How did she cope with it? Did she actually seek solace with someone else what happened to her so suddenly for me the story wasn't about him it was about the people he left behind so there you could start to imagine a world imagine a character and then imagine situations and then you know you conflict that it would be interesting to write about yeah exactly that's that's um what and i think that what if like okay let me look at this image is really why that's good <laughs> Um, all right, so um, we'll wrap it up. I've, I've kept you an hour. I am sorry, but uh, no, no, I enjoyed it. Was yeah, very good. It's great. great talking to you, Jesse. All right, so here's uh, my, the last question. Is the Mary question for those of you who have not uh, heard the podcast before? Um, Jay Armstrong is a writer, in uh, he, he is a English teacher in the Philadelphia area. And he teaches honors English and his senior class every year they take two days and he takes the lyrics from the Bruce Springsteen's Thunder Road. Um, they explore them. They look at the imagery. They look at the different um, uh, allusions Bruce is making. He compares it to Robert Frost's uh, The Road Not Taken. And then at the end of the two days, he asks his class, does Mary get in the car? So we haven't talked much about Bruce, uh, but I did give you the homework assignment to listen to Thunder Road and read the lyrics. And so the question, Asif, is, in your opinion, does Mary get in the car? Does Mary get in the car? Mm. <laughs> so this is a very good question. I think she does, yeah. Okay. Because I think it offers hope. Yes. I, I think that's a fair thought. Um, there is, and, and what do you think, sorry, Jesse? Do you think she gets in the car or not? Well, I grew up watching Walt Disney comic, uh, Walt Disney movies, so I am mm. a firm believer in the happy ending. So mm. I absolutely do. Um, I actually have a, um, I, I did an episode, two episodes, where I took about thirty, thirty-five answers that I've gotten when I asked this question and put them all together. And then I sent the recording to Jay. And then Jay joined me for an episode where we discussed the different answers. And um, the it has become um, uh, Schrodinger's um, car <laughs> questions, right? Like it yeah. all depends. Uh, some of my favorite answers is that um, Mary's afraid because getting in the car is choosing to leave her life and to go go something new and that's scary mm -hmm. and so is she going to let fear overcome her i don't know um other people have said of course it's bruce springsteen asking you to go ride with him why wouldn't you <laughs> uh others go no he says hey you ain't a beauty but you're all right mm -hmm. um she's gonna find someone who does think she's a beauty um mm -hmm. i think my favorite answer 
and I, I, I should write down who said this, but he said it depends. He said if the whole band is doing Thunder Road and she gets in the car because the end of the song is the whole band playing off with the saxophone solo <laughs> and the joy, that is them a celebration of them going off together. When mm-hmm. he does it solo and he plays it out with him humming – and kind of it's a sadder ending. And mm-hmm. so if he's doing it solo, she doesn't get in the car. Um, no. And he's driving off by himself. That's really interesting. So, Can I yeah. let me put something else to you, right? So this yeah. is interesting. I'd appreciate what you think of this. So one of the things I did when I was uh, writing, um, I tried to adapt a Isaac Dinesen, Dinesen book about – sorry, short story about um, – I'd have to come across, but as a narration, I'd actually got Glenda Jackson interested in the project, but it fell through one of these things. Yeah. But the key thing about that book was it's called The Blank Page. Have you ever come across that story? No, I have not. Okay, so I'll I'll explain a little bit what it is, right? Sure. And then I'll end up with a question, and it'll explain to you how writers think as well. So Isaac Tannison, she is a – Karen Blixen was a a real name. She wrote Out of Africa as well. But this short story called The Blank Page is about – a monastery where there's a, a bunch of uh, nuns who sort of uh, look after stuff. But what they do is they have a special place where the noble families, when they the daughter gets married, or after the wedding night, they hold up the sheet, bed sheet, yeah, with okay. the blood stain to show that this uh, girl was virgin. So, And what they do then is the nuns cut that out and they frame it in the monastery and put a name underneath it saying yada yada. And so that is like a testament to that person's, uh, you know, virtuosity, if you like. And one of the key pieces there, one that attracts the most attention, is just a blank piece of white sheet. <laughs> and that's – so the question there is like, ooh, wow, what happened? You know, why is that blank right? right. So that triggers officer questions. I mean, you can say, okay, you know, the obvious one, she wasn't, right? But what if it was the guy's fault? He couldn't do the business, yeah? Or right. this should happen. So you start to unwrap it and you see what are the possibilities are there about that story. And so you can see how the blank page inspires more questions and more sort of uh, answers around what could have occurred than the actual uh, normal one, if you like, with the stain on it. So the absence of information urges the reader to try and fill that in. Well, yeah, like as a as a high school student, we read The Lady of the Tiger, mm-hmm. you know, that famous short story that where um, – and, and they set the um, – where um, the uh, the young man is, uh, is, is choice to pick between uh, two doors. One of them has uh, a beautiful woman. The other one has a tiger that's going to kill him, and uh-huh. the princess that he's having the affair with. Um, knows which one's which, right. and she points to the door, and he opens the door knowing that she would not kill him. But the princess is a jealous person, and so – and if he picks the lady, they will go off, and she will never have him, right? Right. And so the the author doesn't give the answer. Uh, yes. And um, and as a, as a high school student, I hated that. I hated – I'm like, I want to know what's the right answer. Yes. Um, as someone who's 61, I understand that it doesn't matter um, 
I, I mentioned um, Isaac Asimov earlier. Um, mm-hmm. In his one of his autobiography, he talks about he was at a lecture, and he he's talking about a story, and and a, you know someone uh, says, "Well, Doctor Asimov, that's not what the story's about." And Isaac says, "Well, I wrote it. I would think I'd know what it's about." And he <laughs> says, "Well." Dr. Asimov, just because you wrote it, what makes you think you know what it's about? Mm-hmm. And and um, in the book, Isaac stopped. He said, and he went, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And he says, and ever since then, I've never assumed that what my readers – I know what I meant when I wrote it, but that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean what my readers are getting out of it, and I will never assume that they're wrong. Absolutely. One of the key things I've found is – as I sort of published the uh, stories and people read them and they've sort of uh, reviewed them, you know, very favorably, yeah. is that what they pick on is, isn't what I thought they would sort of pick up on, yeah? With yeah. The, and one of the key things you realize is that um, these characters you create take on a life of their own and the reader becomes quite possessive about them, yeah. not, but in a good way. I mean, yes. they empathize with them and they feel them. And then if they you do something which they think is out of character. I think you get that a lot. I think the Star Wars, mm-hmm. the whole last one, you know, Last Jedi, all yeah. people mentioned about that, is about, I didn't expect you to do that. Well, you know, you're consuming something, you're not creating it. Yes. So therefore, they need to do that. I mean, that's why people get very much obsessed about Mike, but she would never do that. You know, Harry yeah. Potter would never do that, which is an interesting observation. But as you write, you learn that people do take on ownership of these characters and stories, and they expect you to, you know, be faithful to their understanding of the character, which isn't always a ground worth exploring. You want a ground which has, you know, difficult decisions, moral choices. Yes. And that's where, you, as a writer, you want to be. Not like, you know, like you said, lived happily ever after or nothing happened, you know. Yeah. Who wants to read that? Who wants to write that? <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I've shared this story before, and um, Lawrence Block is a brilliant mystery writer. And, um, and he had a series of – he has a series of novels where the main character uh, – Matthew Scudder, um, and they're in, in toward the end of the series, um, he is having an affair, but and he is um, he is living with Ellen, who used to be a former uh, prostitute. And at the end of the book, end of the, one of the books, um, as a reader, we know he's having an affair, and yeah. she looks at him and says, "You know, I love you, and I know you love me." And you are giving me everything I need in a relationship, and there is nothing else I need from you, and I just need you to know that. And so at a signing, I asked um, Mr. Block, I said, I said, reading that tells me that Ellen knows he's having an affair, and she doesn't care either because of her background or because she knows all her needs in the relationship are being met. And he looked at me and he says, I think that's what it means too. And I love the idea that as the writer, he's like, yeah, I think that's what she thinks. I think she knows something may be going on. And 
instead of him looking at me and go, yep, that's exactly what I meant, he said, yep, I think that is what the yeah. character is thinking. And leaving it open to that is says so much about the writing process and how – and you just said it really well. It's, it's, it is it's a partnership. You put it out there, but your readers will pick up what they need or want to see and bring it on their own way. Yeah. I mean, for example, I mean, one of the key things just off the back of that was how many people lashed – not lashed, but hooked into – the idea of Harry Potter being an orphan and, yeah. you know, being neglected. And I think that sort of childhood feelings of sort of neglect yeah. or, you know, abandonment was very much what played into that people. You know, obviously people, you don't have to be abandoned, empathized, but people yeah. hooked into that. And also the whole media of uh, Harry Potter was about school and all that. So people, you know, really look yeah. for content. But just as you say, as you spot on, you, they look at that character and they take from him what they see that character as. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've, there's so many examples. I mean, we're, we're talking way, we've gone way over our time yes. a little bit. But, yes. You know, there's so many things where you can see that what the character is being shown as isn't what the character, we take away from that character. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, okay. If someone wants to um, interact with you, find your books, tell them how they can do it. Absolutely straightforward. Just got on to um, Amazon Kindle and just search for A.M. Sardar. That's S-A-R-D-A-R, and you'll see my listings. I've got 14 books up there, and I've got a few more planned, as we spoke about in the uh, podcast. Good. And your Twitter handle? Uh, at A.M. Sardar, all one word. All right. Perfect. Um, I hope you had fun. I had a blast. This was so much uh, it was so interesting. We had a great discussion. Um, I hope you're staying safe and your family is staying safe during this very strange time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me, Jesse. I really appreciate that. I appreciate it, too. Listeners, you stay safe. Remember to wash your hands, do your social distance, and for good sakes, wear a mask and take care of yourselves, and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, it is. It's very much so. I mean, I've got a background in medical sciences, so just sort of looking at the um, way it's spreading and how people are dealing with it, it's, um, it, it illustrates a certain lack of, um, I think it all stems from people not understanding science or not trusting it and believing in sort of rumours and gossip, and that just causes, and then spreading those through social media, and that just causes, you know, uh, uncertainty in people i mean if people had a certain message and they you know behaved in a certain way you could control it a lot better because new zealand has shown how you can control it with you know a dedicated targeted kind of approach but this piecemeal approach it's not good anyway <laughs> no 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 i appreciate that and i may tack this on as a uh, in, insert this because this is uh, my worry and and i'm sure i'm not saying anything unusual is it's the political size, the political way that this has become an issue, um, mm -hmm. I think, in the UK, but especially here in the US, where um, I'm not wearing a mask because you can't infringe my freedom, mm -hmm. uh, or you know that means I'm a uh, a stupid liberal uh, instead of just no, it's the right thing to do, e yes. even if you don't think it works. You know what? How does it hurt? You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, 
fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listening Bruce. Set Listening Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. No, no, you're absolutely right. The way I sort of see it is that America have got sort of got themselves in a little bit of a twist here, the right wing, where they've sort of the belief in self uh, determination, self freedom, that you're responsible for your own actions, is fine for a frontier pioneering kind of society, yeah, where you're on your own yeah. and you don't have much. But in a societal community here, where you're mixing with people, you're going in interacting, then you have to have certain social norms. I mean, you don't you know, do other things socially because it's not acceptable and doesn't because it, you know, cuts down on your personal freedom. It's about, you know, the communal good as well. You know, it's how you approach it and how society is working is that you have a set of norms and you follow through. And one of those is that if you're, you know, infectious, you take risk, you don't infect other people. I mean, you even if you don't want to save yourself, why would you not? But if you do yeah. want to go beyond that, at least you'd have responsibility for other people and say, I don't want to affect those people. They could be, you know, vulnerable. They could be high risk. And that's why you want to try and avoid. But it seems they've got themselves in a bit of a twist now. It's all about becoming very cultural, hasn't it? It has. And- it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.